I am aware that the one that we're going to be talking about this morning is um, blessed are the persecuted, is we do not live in a nation where we're persecuted, but hopefully I can give some relevance to this particular passage so that it will be useful for what we, are, what we do from day in and day out. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 10, read verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the, the previous Beatitudes, they talked about humility and mourning over sin, gentleness, righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, and peacemaking. And those may be difficult for some of us, maybe for all of us, but even more so is there happiness associated with persecution. You go, really? I'm supposed to be happy when I'm persecuted? And I want to I hopefully give some relevance to this, both what persecution is and what persecution is not. There was once a popular national magazine that took a survey and they asked the question, what makes you happy? As you might expect, nowhere in there did they say, oh, I'm really happy when I'm persecuted. They didn't say that, but they did say, happy people are not self-sacrificing. Happy people refuse to participate in any negative feelings or emotions. This is the respondents that they got to this magazine. They also said that happiness is when they have a sense of accomplishment on their own self-sufficiency. I think we can agree, after going through the Beatitudes, this is all contrary to what Christ has said to us. And I'll add this much. Those who are faithful to live according to the first seven Beatitudes are virtually guaranteed to someday experience the eighth, which is persecution. I want to make a couple points before we get into the passage. It says in verse 11, Blessed are you when people... There's three things. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So there's three, three comments there. The insulting part is what we would call abusive words. Jesus saw this many times, and one particular one was Matthew 11. He says, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Those are insulting words, okay? But if you were to take slander, slander's a lot harder to prove. It is, it is something where they are besmirching you, they are degrading you, and I am not going to make this a political environment, but we see on the news all the time that the accusations are made against Trump whether it's true or not, that, that's not what my, my point is. They make accusations, and he goes, no, 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 they're not true. And then sometime later, either they're found to be true or they're found to be false. But it's slander. You can say something against someone, and you go, well, that's not true. Well, I think it is. And it takes a lot of work to undo slander, where they, they say, well, you know, so-and-so say they're a really generous person, but they're not. They're a greedy because if you saw the way they do their, their private affairs, they go, really? I didn't realize they were greedy. Oh, yeah, they're really greedy. To, 
to overturn that is tough. It's really tough because sometimes it's just your word against theirs. When you're insulted, that's clearer. Slander, that's really hard because it's tough to get that overturned. So I want to give a couple, I, a couple uh, instances, and I, I have your, your outline in the back. It says, happiness is not promised unrighteousness. Happy, that is written quite right. Happiness is not promised to those who are unrighteous or who live an unrighteous life. They're not promised. Okay, so we say, okay, I'm a Christian, and if I'm persecuted in any way, then I'm being perse persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. There is no promise of happiness for being a nuisance, even a Christian nuisance, to being objectionable, difficult, foolish, or insulting. There's no promise of being righteous for that or being, being uh, treated kindly for that. I'm going to give you an outlandish satirical story, okay? This is not a true story. And it will kind of give you my point on being a nuisance or being difficult, foolish, or insulting, is there was once a town, let's call it, let's call it Linden, we call it Bellingham. And <clears throat> what had happened is witnessing took place in this town by means of an overhead blimp. And what the blimp did is it would fly over the town trailing gospel signs and dropping tracks and leaflets which were affectionately called bombs. And these were dropped in the town, and the town was really quite easygoing about the whole thing. They said, okay, we'll tolerate this. It, it's all right. We're not going to make a big deal about it. It was a silly idea because no one was ever converted by it. But then as time went on, these Christians, using the blimp, they wanted to improve their message. So what they got was some really expensive sound equipment that they put in the blimp, and they would play over the town gospel sermons. And the people got really sick of it because it was booming in on their homes at all hours of the day and night were these gospel songs and gospel messages and wouldn't you know it, a couple days after the blimp had got the sound equipment, somehow the sound equipment got vandalized, and they couldn't use it anymore, and the town paper cried persecution. No, that's not persecution. That's being a nuisance, difficult, foolish, and insulting. That's not persecution. So the question can be asked then, why then are the righteous persecuted? Because it says if you're righteous, you will be persecuted. Well, let's look at it this way. Righteousness is being like Jesus. It is being like him. So why are the righteous persecuted? Well, there is, there is a couple reasons. When a, person, when a person wants to persecute, their position is being challenged. And they need to justify that position. So let me give you an example. Is Jesus really took the Pharisees to task. He says, the love of money is the root of all evil. You cannot love God 
and money, and the Pharisees really like money a lot. So what did they do? They decided they needed to justify their love of something evil. So what did they do? They took Jesus on, and eventually they killed him. Jesus said something that was true. You can't love God and money at the same time. The, Jew, the Pharisees didn't like it. They were insulted. So they said, fine, we'll fix it. We'll bolster our position by not, not abandoning it. We will embrace it even tighter. And Jesus, we're going to kill you for it. There were, there were people in history that have done things that were a nuisance or that they were difficult. They were insulting. And I'm going to give you one. And it's, it's interesting. When I was in seminary, we had to write a ton of papers, like a ton of papers. And my, my philosophy on writing a paper, if I could, was to write something that was kind of obscure. Hopefully the professor didn't know a lot about it, and that way maybe he could learn something and I get a better grade at the same time. You never want to write on Martin Luther because he's read a thousand pages on, on Martin Luther, and you're not going to say anything different. If you say one thing that's wrong, he'll pick it up because he's read so many things on it. So I took a guy, an obscure guy, by the name of Michael Savitas. Michael Savitas, he was around the 1530s. Now, here's the interesting reason why I'm bringing up Michael Savitas. You're going to hear the story about it. You could even say that he was persecuted. But what Michael Savitas had a handle on is he was a nasty person, is he would disagree with you theologically, and he would write all kinds of things that really put you down. He never used violence. But he used words, and he used literature. He would write books, and he would just rail on his opponents. Just rail on them. And actually, Michael Savitas was wrong doctrinally, and he took on John Calvin. And he said to John Calvin that basically he was an idiot, and he used words like that, and he, he would write whole volumes about it. Michael Savitas did not believe in the Trinity. He did not believe in original sin. He thought that man was somehow semi-divine and that man would one day be a god. And all man needed was the forgiveness of sins. That's all he needed. Now, we don't agree with that. But his delivery was really bad. Really, really bad. It was everything. It was insulting. It was difficult. He was a nuisance. He was foolish because his delivery was really bad, and guess what? He burned at the stake for it. Some would say, oh, Michael Savitas was persecuted. He was persecuted. Well, in a sense, he was, but in a large sense, he brought it on himself, because his delivery was really bad. He did not act like Jesus Christ at all. He acted strictly in his human flesh, and if he wanted to call you dumb or an idiot or uneducated, he would. He would, he'd just throw out bombs all the time. And in that particular day and age, in the 1530s, it didn't go over very well. And they killed him for it. There are other people that you can take a, an example of, and we're going to be looking at those a little bit later on. So righteous, righteousness is not being objectionable or doing wrong or being fanatical or endorsing a cause. That is not what righteousness is. Righteousness means persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
That's what is being talked about here. So there are some battles in the Christian life that only can be won by knowledge. I'm making a, I'm making a transition here. There's, there's some battles in the Christian life that can only be won by knowledge, not by reason or feelings, but by knowledge. And I'm going to link what I just said with persecution here in a little bit. But first of all, I'm going to talk about some battles in the Christian life that only can be won by knowledge, such as you're a young man or woman, and you start to get serious about dating somebody who is not a Christian. If you try to overcome that battle with reason or feelings, you will lose every time. If you're an older person and you pick any subject, you can say I live on a fixed income and I can't give to this, or I'm living doing this and I can't give to that. If you use reason and feelings, you will always fail in whatever your, your endeavor is. If you use knowledge, you will prevail in this particular situation. If you're a man or a woman, you're dating a non-Christian, and you say, I need to break up this relationship because God tells me it's wrong. And I do it. Some battles in the Christian life can only be won by knowledge. If you look at Elijah, look at Elijah when he was, had the uh, mountaintop, the Mar Mount Carmel experience, and then we see that he ran for his life in 1 Kings 19, verse 4. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, and when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Elijah did not operate on knowledge of who God is and what he had just done on Mount Carmel. He was operating on reason and feelings, and he was failing badly. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side. We don't know what that is in America being hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, he was perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And along with being troubled, persecuted, cast, and cast down, Paul was perplexed. He could not trust his reason in the midst of persecution, and that's the link. If we use just knowledge, whether it's in a dating relationship or something else, we can also go to persecution, that if, you rule, if your thoughts are ruled by reason and feelings in the midst of being like Jesus Christ and getting put down for it, you'll probably fail. But if you're in the midst of that and you say, yeah, I'm taking some heat for being like Christ, you're not prideful about it, you're just being factual about it, you say, and I know it's the right thing to do because God says it's the right thing, you will likely prevail. You will likely continue on because you're using the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what God is in his scripture, and you will be able to prevail. So there's, there's a few examples here. I'm going to go in 
Ruman number number three on, on the um, outline. It says, happiness through persecution. There are five reasons, and I'm going to go through these pretty, pretty rapidly. The first reason is persecution is evidence of a believer's union with his Lord. Persecution is evidence of a believer's union with his Lord. And there's a passage right there, John 15. It says, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And if the world hates you for the right reason, you're not a nuisance or difficult or insulting, etc., then it is, it is a, a, how do we say, evidence of a believer's union with the Lord, that you're one of his children. The second one is persecution is when God perfects the believer. Persecution is when God perfects the believer. And this is often the road to practical holiness and sanctification. There was once a story about a, a man during the Depression, during the 20s, and he'd lost his he lost his home and his fortunes and his wife and what he felt was dear to him. He'd lost it all, and he was, frankly, depressed. And he knew what the good life was, and he had lost it, but he was still clinging that knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. He was clinging to him, and he was walking down a sidewalk, and there was a whole bunch of workmen that were forming rock to build this huge church. And this guy was on the ground, and he was making a rock that was somewhat of a triangle. And the, the man was kind of uh, interested. He says, what exactly are you doing? He says, well, you see that hole way up there at the peak of this church? He says, I'm forming this rock down here so that it'll fit up there. And for that man, at that time, that was like God talking to him that the persecution the difficulties that he was going through on this earth was forming him down here so that he'd fit just right up there. And I don't know what your, your history is in your life. I certainly don't know all the things that can be known about you folks. But I would imagine there was a time in your life where things were hard. And part of it could have been because you were a believer. And I can say to you that God is forming you, molding you, and polishing you down here so that you'll be a perfect fit up there. And we should not take that lightly. The third one is, persecution allows us to show the supernatural radiance of a Christian life. It shows the joy of the Christian life, in, just, in, in, in brevity. It shows us the joy of Christian life, and anyone can rejoice when things are going well, but it's a lot harder. Our faith is tested a lot a lot more. It is put through the fire when times are tough. My wife and I have made it a habit, and we probably do it less now, but we still do it. And we have, we have recommended this to young families, at least I have, a lot of times, lots and lots of times, is there are people, whether it be in a congregation this size or, or, or a whole other, I don't care if it's with, with people in, in school, or people in other churches, or friends and relatives, is we do, and this is my expression, maybe not hers, is we cherry pick. And we have been in churches before where we had little kids, and we see these families walk in, and they had high school kids. And those high school kids treated their parents really respectfully. 
not out of fear. They treated him really respectfully. So Sal and I would go up to the parents. We'd go, how do you parent to get your kids to act like this? I mean, they're really fine kids. I call it cherry picking. You pick out the best that people have to offer. Or we would see a, a, a couple that's been married way back when we were married 10 years or so, and they'd been married 50 years. Man, the love between them was palpable. I mean, they've just displayed affection and respect and love for each other. And you, it, it wasn't overt like it was, you know, like, oh, boy, you know, go get a room. It wasn't that. It was like they were genuinely in love with each other. So Sal and I went up to him and says, you guys obviously get along really well, and you've been married for a long time compared to us. How do you do that? How do you do that? So we would cherry pick as we go. I don't care if it's somebody with finances. Say, so, you know, they seem to be fairly well off, and things seem to be going pretty good. So we'd have a cup of coffee with them. How do you do this? And, and nobody had it all. But we would look at this person or this couple. They really did good in this area, and this one in this area, this in this area. And we would do that. And to me, it's showing the joy of the Christian life. And you'd look at people that got to be older when we were young, and man, they had the joy of the Christian life. How did they do that? And so instead of us, what I affectionately call reinventing the wheel, we just go ask these people. We have a cup of coffee with them. How do you do that? And you can glean some really, really good stuff on just life and living. But it's all about showing the joy of the Christian life. The early believers gave thanks, and they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They had the joy of the Lord in their Christian life. The fourth one is it holds the promise of eternal rewards. It holds the promise of eternal rewards. And there's a passage in, in uh, I've got to find it, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, I want to, I'm going to read this. It talks about Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Persecution holds the promise of reward. And in this particular case, we see Moses said, I know what lies ahead for me, and I am not going to engage and indulge in the pleasures that are down here. That is something for us as well. I don't see that they're mutually exclusive, but there are such a thing that we call in biblical counseling as idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you an example of, of what this is. It holds a promise of eternal rewards. I would say that many of us, Compared to a third world nation, we have beautiful homes. Compared to a third world nation, or, or you look at a host of people, we have really, really nice stuff. And there was, a, there was a, I'm going to tell you a story of what happened years and years ago. I don't know, it was probably 30 years ago. We finished our basement and we put a kitchenette down there and cabinets and carpet and just a living space, okay? And my nephew at the time was 10 to 13 years old. And we just got it done, and it was all new and shiny and whatever. 
And he came down, and frankly, he was, for his age, he was very complimentary of how nice his basement was. Oh, man, this is really nice, Uncle Ken. Man, this is great. I said, oh, you know, thanks. He goes, man, this is just really pretty. And I said, I said, Jed, I said, let me tell you something. I said, I, want, I really appreciate you saying that this looks really nice, because we put a lot of work into it, and there's a lot of time and effort and money and whatever else. I said, but I want you to look at this basement and think, what's it going to look like in 50 years or 75 years, maybe 100 years? What's it going to look down here, look like down here? I think there's a little bit of moisture in the basement. And I says, maybe the carpet starts to smell a little moldy and, and the, the, the cabinets fade and the paint gets a little faded and it, it just doesn't, and he, and he just stopped and he looks and oh, it, says, it won't look very good. I said, that's right. It's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. And I says, it's very nice of you to say it looks nice. And frankly, I think it looks nice too. But we need to hold these things loosely because happiness holds the promise of eternal rewards. Our true happiness is not here. Yeah, we have nice stuff. Yeah, it's, it's nice. And we got a car and it runs. You turn the key and it starts most of the time. That's really good. But guess what? One day, that truck or that car is going to be crushed and melted down and recycled. And it'll be a piece of junk. But not our eternal rewards. And we need to keep our eyes on the prize. And it's not what this world has to offer. The fifth one is Jesus is close to those who are persecuted. And you can put right next to that Daniel 3, verse 24, because Nebuchadnezzar was highly upset with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he threw them into the fiery furnace. And if you remember, he had the furnace heated up seven times, and the soldiers that heated up the furnace right at the very end were, got so close to the fire that they killed them. But he threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there, and then Nebuchadnezzar said, Did we not throw three men into the fire? But I see four. So God is exceptionally close to those who are persecuted. I have the next title. It's not in your outline. It talks about the little people. But really, they're not such little people. When Sal and I went to London, England several times, one of the times we went to Oxford, Katie was, was singing over the, the Royal London Opera House, and we went over there, and when, when she was working, we would take some time, and we would go to surrounding areas and just visit them as a tourist. And one of the places we went to was Oxford, and I still remember quite vividly, I don't know why, but it stuck, stuck in my mind, is we went into a small town square, and the person that was leading the group said yes, and it was right here that they burned Hugh Lattimore, Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cramner for heresy against the Catholic Church. And sure enough, they had a, they had a little monument right there, right there, right, right there is where they burned these guys. And it was, it was for uh, opposition against the Catholic Church, and it was during the, the infancy of the Reformation where we see Martin Luther, he's the guy that kind of carried the torch through but there was a lot of people that died before that where they did not embrace tenets of the Roman Catholic Church, and they died for it. 
they tried to be like Jesus Christ to truly and rightly interpret the scripture, and they died for it. Another one that is very well known is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He has a, a book about this big, no pictures, and it's really interesting on his life. But during the reign of Hitler, Bonhoeffer defended the Jews. He's smuggling them out and attempting to care for them, and he joined what was called the Confessing Church. Why did he join the Confessing Church? Because the church that was currently in Germany was polluted. It was absolutely polluted. So he left that church and made what was called the Confessing Church, and it was a movement that helped non-Aryan Jews, refugees, leave the country. He trained pastors in this church movement, and he was hanged in 1945 at the age of 39, just a few days before the end of the war. He was a man that burned brightly in the cause uh, in the war against Hitler. Jim Elliott, you've heard probably a lot about him. He went to the Alca Indians of Ecuador, and these Indians were known to be violent and a murderous tribe who had never had any contact with the outside world. And Jim Elliott's body was found downstream with three others. Their bodies had been brutally pierced with spears and hacked by machetes. All of the plane's fabric had been ripped off as if the Indians had tried to kill the plane. He died in 1956 at the age of 29. In the summer of 1948, which would have been 48 to eight years before he died, eight years before he died, Jim was part of a gospel team, and in one of his notebooks, he wrote this that year. Lord, I pray, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for you. Consume my life, my God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. And he died at 29. He wrote, He is no fool that gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's the one who wrote that. So as you might imagine, when we're going to have a, a message on persecution, we're going to talk about what I call giants of the faith, whether it be the three that got burned at the stake or... Bonhoeffer or Eliot, but let's be honest in this particular message that few, if any of us, will ever suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. We live in a free country, and religion is tolerated, speech is tolerated, and if you're not obje um, objectionable, or if you're not insulting or difficult, you probably will be able to say what you want to say. So I'm not going to lead us on like we're going to be persecuted like the people that I talked about. Believers all over the world have filled libraries with accounts of suffering and martyrdom, but so far, by God's grace, that is not the case in the United States. So, we, the little people, well, how are we supposed to take this particular message? Well, there's some examples of godliness at the bottom. If you cherish humility... If you walk hum humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you're known as a humble person, by contrast, you will expose the evils of pride. If you embrace 
punctuality. If you are thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of, of laziness and negligence. What I'm, what I'm giving here are examples where you can be a stark contrast to what the world has to offer. The third one, if you pursue self-control, if you speak with compassion, you will throw callousness in sharp relief. They'll go, man, this person speaks so kindly and controlled, and these other people, they're not like that at all. A couple more. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you live simply and happily, if you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. And simply put, it means to be persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And when Christ came into the world, he did many things. He exposed evil. And that evil was expressed in hypocrisy, in lying, dishonesty, and selfishness, greed, and in other vices. And the world hated him for it, and they eventually killed him for it. Why? Because Jesus exposed them, and eventually their lives were exposed for what it was, that they were evil, they were hypocritical. We can be certain that God sees what I affectionately call the little martyrs of this world. I want to read you a couple lines where this is where it applies to us. It may take more grace and it may be a greater victory for a man to spend 40 years of his life at the same desk in the same office watching other men and women being promoted over him because he will not do some of the things that are demanded of officers in his company than it would take for John Huss to be burned at the stake. And that is where many of us are, is we are trying to be a witness for Christ, and it goes on for decades. And you may be slighted or ignored, or people may whisper about you, or they may laugh at you, but you keep at it. You're not going to be burned at the stake one day, very unlikely. But that is what you have done or are doing. And it may be more of a victory for a housewife to stay at home, raising her family in the things of the Lord while her nitpicking neighbors laugh at her for being humdrum and unglamorous. You know, that could fit a lot of people in here. That you were just faithful to teach your kids. You were home, you wanted to have devotions, you wanted to have Advent, you wanted to have the real reason for the season. Your life wasn't wrapped up in Easter bunnies, but you told the story of what Easter is really like. And it was unglamorous, and it may have been humdrum to a surrounding world, but in the eyes of Jesus Christ, you were being persecuted, and you were living a righteous life. There is a bracelet that could be worn. It says, what would Jesus do? And the answer to that question is your life. Are you living a life? What would Jesus do? 
and then are you doing it? I think it's a, it's a terrific reminder for us. But be encouraged, Jesus has personally given us an example of what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and the Jews killed Jesus for his righteousness and bringing out their hypocrisy. We're going to celebrate communion, and it's, it, it displays or remembers the sacrifice that our Lord had on the cross. And what I'm going to try and do here in the coming months is I'm, I'm going to be taking and gleaning some excerpts that I think would be, that I guess, yeah, I think would be interesting for you to know regarding Jesus Christ and his life on this earth. And, and, and these excerpts are taken from a book that John MacArthur wrote it called The Murder of Jesus. Terrific book, very plain speak. And, and I'm going to just go through it slowly, and as the months go by, I want to just kind of give you a, a little bit more insight to what it looked like in the Jewish culture and how this all went. And according to Matthew 26, verse 14, Judas agreed to, to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver or 30 coins. It says in Matthew 26, verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas waited for an opportunity to hand him over. Do you, under, do you realize, I did not, do you realize that according to Exodus 21, verse 32, 30 silver coins was the price of a slave. That's how little they thought of Jesus. They gave the minimum amount of money to betray the Savior of the world. Historical records show that during Jesus' time and during the Passover, there was approximately 250,000 lambs were killed. 250,000 lambs were killed, and it was appropriate and it was right and necessary that those lambs would be killed within two hours of sunrise, of sunset. So they had some 600 priests that would go about, men would bring, usually they were in pairs, men would come up and literally it was an assembly line where the priests were killing the lambs. As soon as the lamb was killed, they would leave and they would have hundreds of thousands of Jews go by the temple where these lambs would be killed. And if you do the math on this, it is an average of four lambs per minute for every priest. But if, I'm not going to bore you with the various passages that reflect this, but during the, the time of Jesus, days were reckoned in two different methods. The Pharisees and the Jews that were Galilee, the top of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee North, they reckoned the Passover day from sunrise to sunrise. So the Jews from Galilee North reckoned Passover from sunrise to sunrise on Thursday. The sunrise went all through the night to sunrise on Friday. But the Jews that were in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, they deemed Passover to be from sunset to sunset. So it would be sunset Thursday night until sunset Friday night. So instead of the priests having one two-hour block, they had two two-hour blocks to kill the sacrificial lambs, which makes it 
possible to be done, even though it's a lot of work. And those lambs were killed by the temple, and the blood would run down the eastern wall going into the Kidron Valley, and it was literally a small stream of blood that would go down to the brook at the bottom of the Kidron Valley, and for days the brook would run red because of the blood of all the sacrificial lambs. The reason I bring that up is it says in Hebrews, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. There is a small stream of blood. And what does that blood represent? The sins of the Jews. And we could do that today. But the blood of the animals will never, ever erase the sin of the people. If you remember the words of John the Baptist, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the full meaning of that phrase is about to be unveiled. And we see this with the Advent candle. Is Jesus Christ came for one expressed purpose, is to bring light into the world and die for the sins of the world. That's what he came for, knowing full well in eternity past that he would create us, sin would come into the world, and he would die for it willingly. That is what we are going to celebrate and remember this morning. And as we have communions from, from time to time and month to month, I hope to bring a little bit more history or picture into what this is all about. If the ushers would come forward, we're going to take of the bread and the wine.
each time that we're remembering the sacrifice for our Savior, I try to impress the pain that he went through and the suffering he went through just for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, I, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. Can you imagine on the night when Jesus was, was having the, la the Last Supper and he knew who it was that was going to betray him. He knew that it was a friend of his that had been with him for approximately three years. He knew it. He knew that that was the one that was going to betray him so that he would suffer on the cross. And he did it anyway. Continuing on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 